Crowdsource Tribune presents in association with Crowdsourced Politics. This is Cypher State. All right, everybody, this is official show start. I am Cypher, the host and moderator of the Crowdsource Politics podcast and also of Cypher State. So Cypher State is a foreign affairs and foreign policy focused podcast where we talk about things from that are impacting the geopolitical stage with kind of analysis that you can only get with people that are knowledgeable about it from across the political spectrum, hence Cypher State. And today I am glad to be joined by Tiberius D, our lovely friend and colleague in the streaming space. Tiberius, how are you? Uh, I'm doing okay. Um, on the good news is Ukraine is kicking butt and uh, yes. is time to celebrate if we are um, looking at that. Uh, on the bad news, though, is that if anyone has allergies and they pretty much live uh, west of Denver, or sorry, east of Denver, is that this season has been absolutely horrible. And so I'm feeling that. I'm really feeling that. And um, so I balance out a little bit. Uh, so hopefully I don't give some of my most outlandish takes that I like to give on Cypher State <laughs> for some reason. It bring it brings out the extremist in me. I don't know why. Well, we can't have that. We can't have that, especially what we're going to be talking about because Ethiopia is an absolute mess yeah. of of a situation. And if you didn't uh, listen to our first episode about this, you need to go back and listen to it, everybody. So that one is called Tigray. It was the second episode of Cypher State, first one that we streamed and broadcasted. It was, it goes really in depth and takes, talks about the history of Ethiopia and, and Tigray uh, specifically and all the players that are engaged in the Civil War. That was last year. It's literally been a year since we've talked about this and a lot of stuff has changed. An immense amount of stuff has changed. So we're going to be talking about that here as well. So let's go ahead and get into that. It's been a year since we last visited the Ethiopian region of Tigray. Back in September of 2021, Eritrea was invited into conflict by the Ethiopian central government, and reports of ethnic cleansing of Tigrayans from various areas were abound. Since our last conversation, a lot of things have changed, but the conflict remains. Ethiopia, a once shining example of what a successful, multi-ethnic African country can be, is now battered by a myriad of crises and developing multi-layer ethnic tensions and outright conflict. But despite its precarious situation that has left it in fragile, in some ways, the country is still strong and growing. I am now joined once again by our good friend Tiberius to talk about these developments and what it can mean for Africa and the world. But before we get into that discussion, let's bring you up to speed with recent developments. Shortly after our Tigray episode was released, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or the TPLF, began talks with the Omoro Liberation Army to start joint operations to overthrow the Ethiopian government. These talks culminated in the creation of the United Front of Ethiopian Federalism and Confederalism Forces, a nine-group alliance spearheaded by the Tigrayan Defense Force and the Omoro Liberation Army. The, combination, the combined rebel forces were able to push deeper into federal control territory, getting to just 200 miles from the capital of, Abbas, of Addis Abba. In response, Addis Abba told residents to register their weapons and get ready to defend the capital, and several other regional governments followed suit. 
In addition to the call to arms, the Ethiopian government instituted a six-month state of emergency, which gave the federal government the power to detain critics without warrants, impose curfews, censorship, and restrict freedom of movement within the country. Prime Minister Abi also said that he would lead, personally lead, forces against the rebels from the front lines, leading to a government counteroffensive. The counteroffensive lasted from November of 20, November 26 of 2021 to December 20th of 2021, and proved to be a major success for the government. It recaptured several towns in the Armara and Afra regions, including Lalabella and Shewa Wobit, as well as recapturing the strategic series of Dizzy and Komobocha. By December 20th, the Tigrayan Defense Force requested a ceasefire and the Ethiopian National Defense Forces said they would not push further into Tigrayan territory. Parallel peace and ceasefire negotiations commenced, spearheaded by the African Union. In March of this year, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front and the government of Ethiopia reached a ceasefire with the explicit goal of re-establishing humanitarian aids to the regions of Afra, Amara, and Tigray. But it wasn't long before reports emerged of uneven humanitarian aid across the region, with Tigrayans, or Tigrayans being left without, which exacerbated the area's food insecurity. Then in late August, after months of ceasefire, fighting resumed. Both sides blamed each other for initiating the fighting, and both also expressed frustration for lack of progress towards negotiations to end the then 21-month conflict. The fighting itself concentrated in the border areas connecting Tigray, Amara, and Afro regions. Allegations that the Tigrayans were smuggling in weapons and that the Ethiopian Air Force had downed a plane it claims was carrying weapons for the TPLF emerged. Erstwhile, the government was accused of indiscriminate air bombardments on civilian targets. Civilians reported that pro-government militias, such as Farno, are involved as well. Exacerbating these tensions are food shortages in Ethiopia, which has particularly affected the Tigray region. And just when a new round of peace talks was to begin, or after Tigrayan forces accepted an immediate ceasefire just yesterday, September 12th, the Ethiopian government has been accused of starting another air bombardment of Tigrayan uh, territories, focusing on civil services such as universities and hospitals. All the while, this is made worse by one of the worst droughts that affected the entire Horn of African region in the last 40 years. For people that may have been 90s kids or early 2000s, everybody can remember the commercials on television asking to donate a dollar today can save the lives of five, six children in Ethiopia. Well, we're back to that situation again due to the droughts that caused those cries in the first place. Now that you are brought up to speed, Tiberius, I want to get you in on here. There is a lot I can say about this, um, and I want to make a disclaimer for anyone, uh, the same disclaimer that I made the last time. I, I specialize more with the developed world because there's a lot more institutions and things that I'm familiar with. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is kind of a mess, uh, particularly if you're looking at this from a Western context, is that you've got a lot of cultural differences, you've got a lot of historical differences. And I want to put it in the regard that whenever I talk about Sub-Saharan Africa, I do know some, but I am not an expert. And so whenever you take what I say, do take it with a little, little bit of a pinch of salt uh, because it's not my specialty. It's not my region. But there is some things I do understand quite a bit. I talked about in the last episode 
uh, largely how the geography affects this area. And man, is that really important, particularly when it comes to the weather patterns in which we've seen in this area. Uh, this is an area that grows a significant amount of food when it's good and a significant amount of drought, or sorry, a significant amount of food imports whenever it can't. Uh, it's a lot like Australia in that regard. So um, put this all perspective. Most of this fighting is done on what they call um, the Highway A2, excuse me. And uh, it, it's basically a two-lane road that, um, or basically one way each way, that is very similar to a state highway that you may be out in the sticks with. That is going through one of the most topographical regions that you can, and what I mean by that is very, very hilly, right? Um, and it goes all the way up from Addis Ababa in the capital, and it goes all the way up into the gray. And that is literally 90% of the conflict that has gone on uh, within the last 12 months is just mm -hmm. fighting for the control of that highway because it's the only way you can get from A to B. <sighs> Three things blew my mind about this a little bit, or blew my mind. One, that Tigray had made some gains in actually tearing apart the multi-ethnic coalition that's Ethiopia. Some of that makes some sense and some of that doesn't. Um, I'll put it in this regard. Ethiopia, for me, doesn't make a lot of sense because it's anti-liberal. It's openly in embrace your race, embrace your diversity and your differences to the point where I'm, you know, this ethnicity, you're that ethnicity, and the only thing that keeps us together is that we commonly agree not to kill each other. Um, that works for them to some degree, and in some degree it doesn't, which is why we literally are seeing a, a civil war in Ethiopia right now. The Tigrayans got ejected from the coalition, and uh, they weren't happy, and I don't blame them. The fact that they've been able to get other supporters on was quite astonishing in its own right. But the most astonishing thing is point two. The Tigray actually got beat by the Ethiopian central government in, in an open conflict. And the reason that that is surprising to me is that Tigray has been the martial capital of Ethiopia. And from the point to where we had the show, Tigray was outmanned and outgunned, but was absolutely whipping the crap out of the Ethiopian government. And so, like, it wasn't one of those deals where we were expecting Tigray was going to take over the country, but it was one of those deals to where literally we were expecting that Tigray was going to militarily be competent enough that they could hold their own borders and hold the areas that they wanted to control, but they would solely be starved out. I thought that that would change because they were getting everybody else to flip sides, or at least a number of people to flip sides. And then somehow, literally, the Ethiopian central government, and this is point three, pulls a wild card and kind of just brings everything back to the status quo that we saw a year ago. And I'm just literally throwing up question marks everywhere over my head right now. I wish I had that <laughs> yeah. animation. Um, because none of this makes sense. And I thought the Ukraine war didn't make sense. Uh, this one's probably even worse, and it's very confusing. So that is my spiel. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I can actually answer some of that those questions because I did a, a decent amount of research prior to this this topic, and it seems that what has primarily happened is that the Ethiopian government has actually been able to get assistance from outside forces. We're talking the UAE. Uh, pretty much everybody that's under the House of Saad, but the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and a couple and several other countries have actually provided them with attack drones, and that is what's actually been the primary thing that turned the the, the war effort against the Tigrayan uh, Liberation Front. 
because once they had those attack drones where they basically were using them uh, to just either drop munitions or be munitions to cause damage, you know, flying them into buildings, uh, into troop areas and that sort of thing to deliver it, deliver attacks that very much caused them to have to fall back. And they're doing a massive drone campaign. I think they had like they they've used something like two, three thousand drones or something. It just in like like drone suicide attacks, so to speak. And that's that, you know, countered the war to a degree. There's also the the issue, and this is an interesting thing, um, is that Tigrayans and uh, other Ethiopian ethnic ethnic groups are still fighting in Somalia <laughs> against Al Shabaab. And uh, in one of the instances that uh, had a like huge fallout is that there was a attempt by Ethiopians to disarm their Tigrayan counterparts inside this group that was fighting Al Shabaab, and that caused them to kill each other. Like they tried to disarm them, the Tigrayans are like, "No, fuck that! I'm not going to disarm Are you. Kidding me? You're just going to kill me because of all the ethnic tensions." Well. You know, genocide, we should say, like it's actually on the vert, like ethnic cleansings, genocide, like they're trying to wipe out the Tigrayans, essentially, is what's going on right now. And they got into a skirmish, 30 people on both sides died. Uh, that was that triggered, I think, partly triggered Al Shabaab to actually invade and get break through lines into southern Ethiopia. And they actually got some territory. So that caused the uh, Ethiopian federal government to have to pull back to a degree to fight off that conflict that's happening. It's it's a mess. And that's why yep. we have Ethiopian balkanized as the title of this episode, because there is a ton of that going on and it's not just you know Tigray versus everyone else it's Tigray and the omoras and the amras and, and like other ethnic ever you know militia groups that have like never accepted the central government's authority you know banding together against the government partly because the government invited eritrea in like how are you gonna do that like i don't i don't understand like I, I like I don't know why every time I'm on the show I want to meme, but there's just the part of me that's just like Sunday, <laughs> Sunday, Sunday. Come check out the multi-ethnic, you know, uh, genocidal <laughs> showdown. Jesus like, Christ! It, like I, I hate that, but like that's kind of where it is. And like you know, um, to actually be a lot more serious here is that this literally is like Game of Thrones kind of stuff, and and I'm not even memeing about that. It's like literally you're talking about a society that is more or less in a state of collapse in that everyone kind of realizes the, not the light, not, it's not that the lights are going out, but literally if you make friends with these people, you're now enemies with these, these, and these people. If you try to put down the, the fight against these folks, these folks over here are going to beat you in the teeth. Um, it, it's really like, it's not only just sad, but it's one of these deals to where I think a lot of people here in the West just don't appreciate is that this is what happened happens when, like real quote unquote hell comes to earth is that this is where people and humans largely are at their worst. It's where they think they're backed into a corner and no matter which way you turn, you don't have a friend. And that's largely what they've done throughout this entire region. And um, I, I can't give you the history of this, remind you that Ethiopia is one of the oldest, not only nations, but, but like institutions in the world. Ethiopia was literally the last of the countries to be colonized by the, um, uh, by the Europeans, they were wiped out in 35 and 36 by Mussolini. Um, and then, you know, largely got independence 10 years later after the war ended. 
So outside of that, they've had a better part of a thousand years of history of independence and interaction. So one of those deals where it's like, I can't just point out and like, hey, this is where it all went wrong. Uh, but what I can do is comment regarding like how the state of wars changed. And I like when you talked about drones, I just kind of snapped because if anything that we have seen, particularly in the last three years, is how impactful drones are yeah. in, in modern combat. Uh, it, it's such a force multiplier, multiplier, and it's the same kind of thing that we saw with literally the invention of the tank, is that it allows you to conduct warfare on a completely different level of playing field. And this is what we saw in Armenia-Azerbaijan just you know two yeah. years ago with the conflict, is that Armenia Azerbaijan were largely equally met or were equally met. Armenia looked like they were going to be able to launch a successful offensive. But then Azerbaijan got drones from the Turks and wiped the floor with the Armenians. And we have seen here with the Ukrainian offensives that have been going on is that the game changer has been drones, whether it's intelligence gathering or literally limited um limited munitions attacks, is that drones are literally on the best case scenario uh a flying mini helicopter that is very stable gives you time on target information that you can figure out where the dude where your enemy dudes are without them seeing you and so you can put like artillery on them and that kind of thing allows you to prim or you allows you to interact long-range warfare at a level that we haven't been able to before or at least most non-modern nations have right but on the other side of that it's a hundred dollar suicide drone yeah it's, it's, it's not something that you have to dump a million dollars in to have a Tomahawk cruise missile fly off and, you know, GPS track into a target. You literally just buy a hundred, maybe a thousand dollar drone. It literally is something that we can get off out of Amazon. You strap a bomb to the thing and just fly it into somebody, or not into somebody, but something important. And it, it does a lot of damage because, as we've seen with the Ukrainians... Uh, in the Russian space is that if you hit the key issues where you fly the drone into a room full of generals or, you know, you fly it into an ammo dump and you blow half the ammo dump straight to hell, well, you know, that $1,000 was a really good investment. Yeah, and and it, it's, like I said, the, the drones are what definitely changed it, like what you were saying, Tiberius. And the reason I brought up the, the drones specifically and also because of what just happened, like they use drones to attack the Mekali University campus, business campus. So it hit the Dimitis Wayan TV station that was ran by the regional government and also uh, the hospital that was in there. They like targeted this infrastructure directly where people are going to school. And yes, despite this conflict, people are still going to school and there's still massive investments happening in Ethiopia. Which is why I say, despite you know the fact that it's under conflict and everything like that, there's still some growing strength here. And I want to talk about a, a bit about that too, because it goes to show like how the, it might fracture, how Ethiopia might just completely fracture on these ethnic lines and, and cease to be a, the state that it was. Uh, you could have a similar uh, situation to what happened with North and South Sudan uh, happening here. And and that is that there are uh, a major investment into telecommunications. We're talking $1, like $1 billion U.S. dollars being invested into building up the, the infrastructure for cell phones in Ethiopia to get everybody on LTE within Ethiopia by a major corporation. Uh, 
getting money from various different places to include a uh, American company and a I want to say it's a British one. So that's major investments coming from there. They're still filling the ginormous dam that it puts the water resources of Egypt and Sudan at risk. And they filled it. The third major one was filled just recently. It was on August 19th is when it was after they signed a major agreement, cooperation agreement with South Sudan to you know, make sure that they're damming to build this mega, this ginormous power plant that's going to supply a ton of electricity that's going to be eaten up almost right away by Ethiopians as they develop and become more middle class. Uh, it, it And, you know, put their water at risk for Egypt and Sudan. And they're still going through with it. Not only that, they're also still having one of the fastest population growths in the world let alone Africa, all of Africa. Uh, I think their population birth rate is still eight, eight to one. So eight, eight children for every roundabouts there. I'll, I'll look it up really quick. It's, um, it's, it's about eight. It is about eight yeah. to two. It's for every two parents. You yeah. usually have eight kids. There is one thing that I will say about that. Um, Ethiopia is one of those interesting countries and I'll have to bring up my own demographic data on this here in just a second, but it is one of those that is still strictly severely impacted my mortality, uh, particularly child mortality, where it's like, yeah, you have eight kids, but two of them are dead before they reach the age of six. That is changing with the modern developments that we are seeing within Ethiopia. Uh, remind you this. It's four, huh? four, it's four births it, per woman. Uh, okay, I'll have to right double now. check. <laughs> That's fine. I'll, I'll have to double check that because this used to be one of the, the countries yeah. with the highest growth rate in the world. It was uh, like literally it's second still, to only Afghanistan. It still is very high. Uh, last when I looked at it in news reports, but Google's telling me in 2019 it's 4.15 births per woman. Okay, uh, so I apologize for that. Like I would totally expect that if that was post-COVID numbers, not pre-COVID numbers. Uh, so I'm I'm a little washed out of that one, but I'll definitely pull up my or files on this. I cannot stop burping today. I tell you what, it, um, they, they have a birth rate of 43.96 per thousand. So they still have a very high birth rate. It's just that there there's so many people that even though they're the even though they're having less kids per woman, they're still having a huge amount of growth in their population. That that's where the disconnect comes from. Right. And uh, to to put that in perspective, because I I definitely know this is that Ethiopia, at least until COVID, had a usually an average growth rate of about 10 percent. It was literally one of the fastest growing economies in the world. And there's significant investments that are going on there. Problem is that the population was so grow was growing so quickly in tandem with that that you were only seeing marginal gains in the GDP per capita because all of the economic gains was largely of scale and adding more people, not of quality of life improvements. Um, and so there's been a few people that have gotten rich in Ethiopia, but the the reality here is that it's just there seems to be more people interacting with this, um, interacting as part of this. And yeah. for anyone who um, for anyone who wants, I just pulled this up. You're, I'm looking at a country of 108 million people, uh, and that has just as an example, the parents, the generation of 20 to 25 year olds is about 10 million folks, but the generation that has just been born in the last um, you know five years, so anyone between zero and four, is 16 million. That's the level of growth that you're looking at in this in the system. Uh, so yeah, rapid growth, rapid movement, but horrific mortality and horrific levels of a standard of living because of the fact that they cannot keep up with that. Yeah. 
it'll be interesting to see what it'll actually be interesting to see some of these uh investments and what they'll be able to turn around because um originally sudan was basically coalitioning with egypt to openly mm-hmm. tell the ethiopians it's like uh this isn't going to fly but then the ethiopians did something with this new dam and they call it like the the blue nile renaissance dam and it's really close to the border with sudan is that they've openly given them the same deal that the brazilians gave to the paraguayans when they built their big dam uh, on the border is that hey we're going to fund it we'll build it all that you get 30% and that's largely the deal that's been struck is that um I, I'm not sure the particular uh, details, but I think it's about 30% of the energy revenue that is made from this structure is going to be shipped over or, you know, literally power lined into Sudan for Southern Southern Sudan, which is not South Sudan. Uh, what I want to make that very clear is that that is going to be able to develop as well. And so um, I, I get why that deal was struck. It's kind of a win uh, and it leaves Egypt out to dry. Uh, so yeah. that's horrifying. <laughs> but on the other side of that is... Literally. It, if Ethiopia can actually build out a modern infrastructure and the biggest way you do that is a power grid. Yeah, I can totally see everything turning, turning around. And the real issue that they're just going to have to deal with is can they keep this multi-ethnic federation together? Or is it literally just going to be where somebody gets upset, pulls out, and they literally just have, you know, a stereotyped civil war across the, um, across the entire region. And um, the one thing I'll actually add on uh, as a final note here, in the last episode I said that it would shock me if there wasn't foreign intervention. This is an incredibly strategic point of the world, particularly in the fact that it's right next to Djibouti and Eritrea, which used to be part of Ethiopia, remind you, um, and as part of that ethnic tension, Eritrea openly broke away, is that all of this is right next to, um, to a, a strait that is the junction between the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea, which is one of the major shipping lanes of the world. Everything that goes through Suez goes through that as well. And so a level of stability here is pivotal to anyone who relies on global trade. And uh, so the Saudis intervening makes a little bit of sense. I didn't think that they would go that way, just solely out of the fact that uh, their attention has largely been dealing with Iran. But uh, side note, I've actually <laughs> found out that they're in their fifth round of chats with Iran and trying to bury the hatchet. So um that's an episode we're probably gonna have to do in the future. Oh, where'd you hear that from? Just curious. Um, I was, I, oh, excuse me. I was on uh, one of the open voice calls of Twitter the other day okay. and uh, actually got the chance to speak with uh, the great Ian Brimmer, but um, I, I was talking with an investment capitalist, um, you know, he's a CFA sure. and we were talking about some of the global implications. Uh, we were talking about like how Singapore is one of the, the up and coming places now that the Swiss have openly declared to be pro-Ukrainian and so that everyone is trying to stay apolitical. And so Singapore's kind of becoming the new Zurich. Um, but I openly said that next year with the rising cost of food, I'm literally looking at uh, the Saudis and the Iranians going at it. And uh, he was like, you know, they're in their fifth round of talks, right? I'm like, no, I don't. You'll have to show me. It turns out that's true, but I would be very cautious on how optimistic those talks are going. I can hear it. I can feel that. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk about here is like some of the uh, the implications of what might happen if Ethiopia balkanize. And the reason I want to talk about that is because Ethiopia, as Tiberius had said, is this one of the oldest empires, essentially, in modern history, in, in history. And it has been a conglomeration of 
various ethnic groups ruling the area, some more, more or less, you know, equally than others and other times not, you know, every, you know how empires are. They get tyr tyrannical after a while. And one of the things that the current prime minister, Ivy, wanted to do was kind of break down those ethnic loyalties into a more Ethiopian national identity. And I don't think he's being successful. And so because he's not being successful and because there's still the outright murdering of people on both sides, you know, if you're in Western Tigray, which is a, a region, it's called West Tigray. It's on the Western side of the Tigray region. It borders Eritrea and, um, I think it's Damn. Afra. Was that? Uh, I was just going to say Sudan. It, it borders, yeah. but um, if yeah, if you're talking about the sub regions, I'm not familiar. Right. And it was lit, what it, when it was created. It was created. It was given to Tigray. The Tigrayans took it, and it's a very fertile portion of Ethiopia. And when that was done, they said, oh, it was to be more equitable between everybody. You know, we're, we're creating a new nation. This is just kind of how it's going to be. You're going to get some of the land over there. Um, Amara, it might have been Amara. Um, I'll double look and then I'll correct myself in the post. <laughs> but either way, it's a Tigrayan region and or a, an Ethiopian region. And as soon as the tensions blew up into war, the government basically kicked everybody, all the Tigrayans, out of this area, cleansed it, and gave it over, gave the, the land over to, the fertile land over to Loyalist. What, how are you going to expect people to act? You had, you know, a very, pretty much a more or less, you know, uh, ethnic neutral sharing of this land, for the most part. And then you're just saying, get out. All of you Tigrayans, you're all evil, go away. <laughs> so what do you think Tiberius if Ethiopia keeps going the way that it's going and they can't sue for peace what is the most likely in your mind configuration that Ethiopia is going to take and what will that mean for Sudan Somalia and uh, Eritrea that borders Ethiopia directly want to take this and say that we've got a Y situation here, but we're largely back to where we were 12 months ago, ironically and not. So the first Y path, if you will, is um, does the central Ethiopian government stay together? And that, that can actually happen because, remind you, to have a central government, you just largely need a majority of the political power base to keep you in check and to keep you uh, aloft, and everybody else can go pound sand. And so even if you have the Tigrayans or maybe an ethnic group or two that are not in, as part of that central government, as long as you have a political power base that is geopolitically largely secure, can interact with the wider world, you still have a functioning government. And if that is the case, then they can literally just kind of go ham on everybody. And I hate to put it in that kind of dark sense of tone, but um, that is something that really concerns me is that, that that's the smarter way to play it. It's a little Machiavellian, but it absolutely would work. Um, if that becomes the case, Sudan has no case to fear because that's the people that they made a deal with and getting this dam built. And so mm -hmm. um, I would not be surprised if you can literally build out the power grid to literally run all the way to Khartoum, which uh, is about the extent of what you would run that power grid, but you could totally do it. Um, and Khartoum is, Khartoum is the uh, capital of Sudan for anyone who's unaware. 
Um, the other why is what happens if Ethiopia does break down? What happens if the event where the central government just somebody who is in the leadership is no longer able to keep any of the ethnic coalitions together or just cannot maintain any kind of real majority power structure to where like the people that you need to have your key alliance with no longer find you to be a trustworthy or a worthy ally to have. In that event, you're looking at a full-blown civil war. And uh, that was literally where we were six months ago. Uh, is that we were on the doorstep of a, a full-blown civil war in the country, uh, and if it wasn't for outside help, that absolutely would be where we are now. Um, in the event that you do see something where a fragmentation starts to look like it's being the case, I think you're probably going to see more of what we've seen already, where key interests are going to come in and try to funnel what resources they can into making sure whoever they want to win, which like, most likely will still be the central government, they are going to be equipped and supplied to win. Makes sense that the Saudis are largely pushing that. Um, the, the thing that I'm actually a little bit shocked on is that the Chinese actually have a base in Djibouti and they haven't offered up a lot of uh, support to this cause as far as I'm aware. Um, if China isn't actually on the doorstep imploding, which is a whole other conversation. Which we're going to have that... next week. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, if that's not, or we'll talk about that next week. But the long and short here is that if China is actually still has plans of being a global power, Ethiopia is a major critical concern because this is the gateway to Europe and is one of the major Facts. linchpins in one one belt one road. They're going to have to play politics in this particular fight. They're going to have to support somebody, and this is where we can actually see uh, what I've expected is that if China and China and the United States are the two preeminent powers. You're probably going to see a new Cold War start breaking out, and this wouldn't be the this would probably be the first major quote unquote battle space geopolitical confrontation that the two powers could get into. Is that we simply just decide that we're going to support two sides, and uh, the the whole um, the whole thing goes up in a powder keg. This happened with the Soviets. One of the reasons Eritrea is an independent country is because the Soviets supported one side and the Americans supported another. And this is, I believe, 1971, 1973, but you have to double check that for me. Um, but yeah, we, we have openly picked sides in that kind of knife fight before. And if China can bring its run to bear and America can bring its run to bear in that particular uh, interaction, that would be interesting. That being yeah. said, ahead, one last ahead. thing is that the United States is very distracted and that we are very invested in Ukraine but when that is over primarily everything on deck is going to be anti-China yeah no for sure it, it's very good that you mentioned this how this could be a budding confrontation between the United States and, and China uh, specifically because as soon as the truce broke down um, Anthony Blinken came out with a statement and I'm going to read it word for word here. This was released on August 24th by uh, Anthony Blinken, secretary of state in his press statement quote, we are concerned by reports of renewed hostilities in Ethiopia. We call on the government of Ethiopia and the Tigray people's liberation front to redouble efforts to advance talks, to achieve a durable ceasefire without preconditions and ultimately bring a permanent end to the conflict. Over the past five months, the March 24th humanitarian truce declared by the government of Ethiopia and reciprocated by the TPLF reduced violence and cleared the way for delivery of humanitarian assistance in the Afra, Amara, and Tigray regions of Ethiopia. Respect for this truce over the past 
or respect for this truce over the past five months has saved countless lives and enabled assistance to reach tens of thousands of people. Recent provocations on the battlefield, bellicose rhetoric, and the lack of durable ceasefire now threaten this progress. They also delay the establishment of an inclusive political process to achieve progress towards common security and prosperity for all Ethiopians. A return to active conflict will result in widespread suffering, human rights abuses, and further economic hardship while playing into the hands of those who seek to undermine Ethiopia's peace and security. So I want to read that little bit again. Uh, let's see. They also delay the establishment of an inclusive political process, for emphasis, and they seek to further economic hardships while playing into the hands of those that seek to undermine Ethiopia's peace and security. Continuing on, he wrote, We note the government of Ethiopia's establishment of a negotiating team and its stated willingness to go to talks. We ask all parties to respect the provision of food and fuel by humanitarian actors and refrain from militarizing humanitarian relief and to work towards restoration of basic services for those in need. The United States remains fully committed to the unity, sovereignty, and territorial integrity of Ethiopia and seek peace and stability in Ethiopia. We stand ready to work with all Ethiopians to navigate the full range of challenges the country faces, which include overcoming a historic drought and promoting regional security. The United States is the largest contributor of humanitarian assistance, reflecting our commitment to reach all regions and peoples in Ethiopia in need. Last year, the United States provided nearly $1.2 billion in development and humanitarian support for the Ethiopian people, including not only Northern, Ethi including not only Northern Ethiopia, but every corner of the country in support of drought relief, food security, peace building, health, education, technology transfers, and training. That's how the statement ends. So the United States knows it's coming, right? That's what that statement says. It's basically like, hey, don't split up as a country. We're going to, we want the country to remain together and be within our orbit. Like that's what that statement actually boils down to. Let's let's not let's not beat around the bush. Am I wrong, Tiberius? Come on, help me out. So, okay, I, I want to make something very clear. I have a little bit of a bias here. I am not a fan of Anthony Blinken. Um, and and the number one reason for that is that while I don't destroy dissuade his confidence or competence, is that he is one of the most sanctimonious people that I've seen ever as a Secretary <laughs> of State. There's a lot of speeches. There's a lot of big talk that comes out of his office that there's a lot more talk than action that I see in a lot of different ways. That being said, I don't think he's an idiot. I don't think that he does a lot of the things that he does uh, solely on any kind of like crazy grounds. It's just there's a lot that he touches on that I don't see a lot of follow through. He's a little bit like Bill Clinton in that regard. Uh, comes in, makes the great good speech, but there's no follow up. Here's the kicker. Does the United States consider this an interest? Absolutely. Is the United States really putting the effort in to actively stabilize this confrontation? No, I'm not seeing it. We're a little, but honestly, we're a little busy. Um, we're, we're particularly 
Hey, we're trying to take on the Russian government. We're trying to yeah, we're we're, we're literally we're, we're literally trying to fight a proxy war against the Russians, and, and you know that, that that's a that's a busy thing. Even though the Russians have uh, proven to be one of the most incompetent powers we have ever seen, um, ridiculous. Uh, I yeah, I digress. We'll actually have to do an episode. Yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> we'll have to do an episode just on that. But uh, when it comes to this. Um, Blinken has yet to show me that this is something that he cares about. If it is something that he openly cares about, tell me, has there been a state visit? Has there been, you know, any kind of major increase in particular aid, weapon cells, that kind of thing? The only thing that I'm, I'm 90% sure of is that the United States has ramped up levels of humanitarian aid, particularly food de- delivery on that you just shove it up in the back of a c-17 and you fly it off to the the areas sometimes you'll literally drop it out of the back um that is something that we do a lot particularly in these areas and uh while there's a lot of people that hate foreign aid and how we do that kind of thing this is absolutely one of the best things that the united states does and particularly the united states military does for humanity is that we give people food whenever they can't get it and we literally will drop it out of a plane to get it to them uh i i, I praise our country for being able to do that and now willingly doing that um in fact i believe that's one of the things that's actually keeping the grains fed in any kind of regard is that the united states is openly in in some ways trying to play it politically sound but also we're putting pressure on the government's like look sure. these are still people and they deserve food um I'm really interested to see where the rubber meets the road on this because everyone else in the region hates the Tigrayans. Uh, Eritrea has openly tried to use them as leverage against the Ethiopians. Um, Sudan doesn't really give a crap, and anybody else is largely sided against them. So it's just, it's weird. It's a, you know, you know, the language cluster beep, you know, um, yeah. that, that's what we're dealing with. And just <laughs> figuring out where the battle lines are sometimes is a little bit weird. And I, I do apologize for that. But um, this is like watching a hornets go up against wasp. You, you can tell that there's something going on here, but you're watching these little, you know, things buzz around and it's really hard to figure out which one's the hornet, which one's the wasp when they're going and attacking each other. No, I, I think that's fair. I think that's, that's very fair, but one of the things that I think the reason that a lot of people aren't necessarily supporting the Tigrayans on um, is is because they feel, they might feel they have more, not leverage. What, what's a good word for this? What, not necessarily corruption, per se, from Abi, the current prime minister, but maybe... Or a better investment. Better like, investment, I, I, yeah. Yeah, like I, I can two step this really quickly. Uh, number one is that even in like most math, most situations, that if you're looking at this as who do I want to support in this particular engagement, is that most likely you're going to su- or, uh, support Addis Ababa and whoever's in charge there because yeah. they've got the numbers, they've got a lot of the political institutions still on their side. Tigray has largely been alone of the night until people start switching sides, and even with that, it's still not remotely a majority. The other side of that is that Tigray has been the military arm of Ethiopia for most of its history. And when the Ethiopians would actually participate in UN excursions to send their troops off to help police out of Africa, it was the Tigrayan troops that were largely the people that were doing that because they Mm -hmm. are the combat professionals. That has given a lot of people in the region kind of a bad taste for the Tigrayans. I can see that. They've got, they've literally had... To grand soldiers in their towns and in their villages, you know, granted they're part of a UN peacekeeping mission, but everyone knows where they're from. And that I think that's actually a huge deal that a lot of people haven't spoken about. 
No, I could definitely see that. I can't speak on it, but that makes sense from a logical standpoint. So I could, yeah, I, I'm not going to disagree with that. Um, I'd mm -hmm. be uh, be interested to know more about it, but you, nothing you said pings me as being wrong. So, um, I, I was reading an article when we did the, the last grain, um, the last grain episode was that, um, doing a lot of the research uh, of the history there is that um, that was one of the things that kept kind of popping up is that Tigray has largely been the military arm. And that's why a lot of people weren't expecting the, the fight to end soon is that Ethiopia had the numbers, but Tigray had the competency. And it was one of those weird things to where basically the troops that have been deployed over all of Africa who have battle experience are the Tigrayans. Um, and it was one of those deals where I, like that one always stuck with me in the regards that, um, it was really big on that. Most of the UN peacekeeping missions that have actually had African troops a part of them, largely been Ethiopian and largely been Tigrayan. And so uh, I don't have one of those on site because it was literally a year ago, sure. but I'm sure it would be pretty easy to find. Oh, no, for sure. I, like I said, I don't, I don't hundred percent. What you're saying makes total sense. Uh, I just right. want to learn more about it. Um, is there any, any final thoughts that you'd want to, to leave with this topic, which we'll end up probably visiting again here in a week or two, <laughs> more than likely, at least on, a, on an international news roundup, which I'm going to be starting up to. My final thoughts on Ethiopia and Tigray is that this is one of those examples where everything is on the verge of horror, and yet you know, isn't quite there. It's bad, and yet things can still get worse. And it's really a good litmus test on how crappy humans can be. I hate to put it in that particular context, but I really do kind of feel that way. And I don't think there's any particular better way to frame it. There's a lot of people in this conversation and in this conflict that really should acknowledge that fighting is a bloodbath waiting to happen. And no matter who wins, everybody's probably going to lose in this fight. Mm -hmm. um, and, th and that's actually the real concerning part for me is that this is one of those deals to where even with the investments, even with the population growth, is that if this conflict gets nearly as bad as it can be, and it already kind of is, is that you can see so much potential growth and progress and development for Ethiopia just go completely out the door. And um, the final note that I have uh, on top of that is that might be coming anyway, not because of anything the Ethiopians did. One of the things that I'm looking at writ large is how big is harvest going to be in the northern hemisphere i've been talking about this all year over on my channel and, and all of the stuff that i do is that we were already having a fertilizer shortage in the developed world we were looking at that uh, descending into the developing world particularly the brazils and the sub-saharan africa and what we were looking at and just sorry to speed this up is that there was a fertilizer shortage which made it to where people were switching the crops that they would usually grow and then the ukraine war broke out and mm -hmm. the Russians and the Ukrainians together are literally like rivaled as the number one or number two exporter of cereals on the planet. I'm already expecting that the Middle East is going to be a hell zone because of this, unless somehow everybody is able to harvest their crops and export them, which is a huge lift. Um, but also that if North America doesn't have some serious changes up in their particular exports, uh, Europe is a question to itself. If things are remotely as bad as what we expect them to be, is that we're looking at about a 30% decline in the in the amount of cereals that are going to be available come November, November December. Um, the last time we saw anything like this happen, we saw Arab Spring, and it looks like this time it's going to be even bigger, even on like the, the conservative estimates. If it's as bad as some people think it might be, which we won't know until probably next month, 
is that we could see the potentiality where there is 500 million people at risk of being in famine. And Ethiopia is on that list. So the next time we revisit this, I don't know if it'll be a year. I don't know if it'll be a couple of months from now. But Ethiopia is actually on my watch list for catastrophic failures of food. If that is the case, this is going to be one powder keg that we will be revisiting. Oh, fair point. Um, to to for my final thoughts here, I want to agree with Tiberius about the famine situation, food insecurity, climate change, all perpetuating the cycle of conflict and violence that we'll probably see within the next year or so. If the Tigrayans and the Ethiopian central government can reach a peace deal that is amicable to both parties, then we could see Ethiopia come out of this stronger. It isn't a sure thing, especially after the Tigrayans said that they would be willing to have a peace a ceasefire and peace talks and then got blown up again. But it's still a possibility. And it is still a possibility because of the successes of Abbas Abba, the, the central government against the Tigrayans, as well as the fact that Ethiopia itself is still growing despite the conflict and sanctions against it. With that note, the United States government has increased sanctions for a year or extended the current sanctions against unnamed Ethiopian uh, politicians and companies. But despite those sanctions, the Ethiopian economy is still growing, although at a slower pace than it would be otherwise, even in the face of COVID and soaring inflation that is impacting the world. So with that, I want to say thank you again, Tiberius, for coming on. This was fantastic. We are always happy to have you. Please, we'll be doing this weekly now, everybody. This not necessarily a conversation with Tiberius and other folks, but we will be doing Cypher State as a weekly podcast. Every other week is a topic, and every, every other week besides the topic is going to be about some international news, just in general, doing a new international news roundup segment Sundays. Hope is to have those at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time every Sunday, but that is still subject to change. Be sure to check out our channel, YouTube, or Twitch for the schedule. As we say at Crowdsourced Politics, keep your head up through a political storm.